You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Well, this is week number two of our series called The Truth About Suffering, and uh, we've been looking at these things, and I want to continue this today. We're going to dive into some things that, that I don't recall having ever uh, ministered or taught you before, and so we're going to look at those things. But uh, again, we're looking at the question of human suffering, and here's why, and, and it's because of this. Most people shape their perception of God upon what they see, hear, and know or perceive about human suffering. And you know, people, we read some comments last week uh, from uh, an atheist writer that, you know, just his perception was that God really doesn't care that people suffer. Uh, you know, and, and matter of fact, he attributed uh, a lot of the ills in this world to the hand of God. And, and, and you, you need to understand something. God is not behind the suffering that goes on in humanity. That he is a good God that he has done everything he can to deliver people and to set people free from those things. And so he is not behind it. And so we're going to get into some truths today about who is behind it. All right. I think you might already know, but we're going to pull the veil back and look at some things. So let's look at our, our foundation scripture as I grab my clicker. And uh, let's look at James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And James gives us a New Testament approach of how to look at the case study on human suffering from the book of Job. Did anybody read any of the book of Job this week? Okay. Uh, you know, it's not one of those books that you read and then makes you want to jump up and run around and shout. All right. I'll just tell you that up front. So, but just know, and, and so the, the book of James, James gives us some clues as to what to uh, believe for and extract from the book of Job. And so let's look at this. My brethren, he said in verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Say the word suffering and patience. Okay, so we, we kind of have an idea of what suffering is, but uh, notice it goes hand in hand to, to make it through suffering. It takes, of course, the suffering part, but then the patience part. Patience means consistency. And by the way, none of us are exempt from these things. Jesus said himself, in the world, you're going to have trouble. And as long as you're alive and breathing and in this world, you're going to have trouble. But I'm so glad he didn't end and put a period right there. He said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So what he was saying is, yes, you're going to experience life you're going to experience trouble, but be of good cheer. I will provide the way for you to be able to overcome in those things. So again, verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. So he's getting ready to tell us what God wanted the end to be, and that was this, 
that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so last week we made this point. It's not in your notes for this week. But what we said last week is these verses tell us to be inspired by Job's patience, his perseverance, his endurance, and the mercy and grace of the Lord that brought a great deliverance. And so if you missed last week, we looked at the end of the story of Job in Job 42.10, and the Bible says that when Job prayed for his friends that the Lord restored everything that he lost. Matter of fact, he gave him double what he had lost. And, and by the way, God is no respecter of persons. If he is able to do it for Job, he's able to do it for you. Amen? Can I get a little bit better amen than that? Okay, don't be afraid to make some noise, okay? Now, there are some things that we need to understand about God in this particular study. These are basic things, but you need to understand these things. And we're, these aren't in your notes. They're on my notes, so if you, if you need them, you can look at them later on. But here's some things we need to know about God. Number one, God is in a class all by himself or all to himself. No one compares to him. Nobody's like our God. You know, we say that in a cliche, but it's really the truth. And, and can I say this to you? Get out of your mind that it's God and the devil on equal footing, and they're fighting with one another. There, there is nothing further from the truth. God is God. He is the most high God. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. There is nobody greater. There's nobody that compares to him, and yet he loves us and cares for us. Amen? So God is in a class all to himself or all by himself. The second thing is God is omniscient. Now, that's a fancy theological word that means he knows everything. God knows the end from the beginning. I'm, I'm going to say this to you, and we'll see more about this in a little bit. God's never had a new idea. God's never stopped and said, you know, I've never thought about that before, like we do, okay? God knows it all. He knows everything. He knows every detail. He knows every answer. He knows everything. Here's the third thing. Number three, God is omnipotent. He is all powerful, all powerful. There's nobody more powerful than he is. God is all powerful. He's omnipotent. Number four, God is omnipresent. Now, I don't understand this. In other words, I can't wrap my thinking around this, so I don't even try. I just believe it because the Bible says so. So here's, let me show you how this works. You know, we, I quoted a scripture a little while ago in my prayer, Hebrews 13.8, that says God, no, not Hebrews 13.8, Hebrews 13.5, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. So here's what I want you to see. That's true for me, just like it's true for Brenda. So if God cannot be everywhere at the same time, then he's a liar because he's either with me or he's with Brenda but he can't be with both of us. Does that make sense to you? Or anybody else, okay? But the fact that God is omnipresent, he can be everywhere at the same time means he can be just as much with me and with you at the same time, okay? Here's the, the next one. Number five, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, that's a word that... We're, we're hearing a little bit of in 
this past few days because of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, she was referred to as the sovereign over the United Kingdom, meaning she had final rule and say over the kingdom. Now, probably more in a figurative sense today than, than in times in the past as far as the monarchy is concerned, uh, but you know, you'll hear her referred to as the sovereign of Great Britain or the sovereign of the United Kingdom. Now, King Charles III is the sovereign. So what does the sovereign mean? It means that he has supreme rank, power, and authority. So God is sovereign in the sense of he has supreme rank, power, and authority. Now, I hear people say sometimes, God can do anything. Anybody ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. Do you know that's not true? Yeah, he can't lie. He can't fail. He can't do works of darkness. There's a lot of things God can't do. Now, what you need to also understand about his sovereignty is God in his sovereignty, you know, people have this misbelief that, that God is in control, that God can do anything, anytime, anywhere, all of those types of things. Now, in a very broad stroke of the sense, yes, he has the ability, but because he is sovereign, he has chosen to limit himself in the sense of he has given you and me a free will and he absolutely will not override your will. He will not make a choice for you. He'll help you. He'll lead and guide and direct you. He'll do his best to try and get involved to influence your decision. But he gave human beings the right to choose. And he did that because he is sovereign. Only a sovereign personality could give a right like that. Okay? So those are some things that just in a very general sense that you need to know about God. He's in a class all by himself. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's everywhere, and he is sovereign. Now, I want to take some time and I want to highlight some things about our adversary, Satan, okay? You need to understand these things. Now, we're not glorifying him, but we don't want to be ignorant about him either, all right? Because let me tell you something, what you lack in knowledge about him, he will make sure that you know something, but it ain't going to be the truth. All right, here's the first thing. Things we know, need to know about Satan. Number one, Satan is a fallen angel. He is not deity. He is a fallen angel and nothing more. All right, here's number two. He is not in the same class as God, nor, by the way, of human beings. He is not in the same class that you are in the sense of angels have free will, but they do not have the right to use it. Now, we know he did because it ended up getting him kicked out of heaven. You remember when he and a third of the angels rebelled, God made sure that he was cast out of heaven. So he had free will. He could choose to rebel against God, but he did not have the right to. You have the right to choose. Okay? Here's the third thing. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Okay? Now, he likes you to believe that he does, that he knows it all, but he doesn't. 
Okay, here's the next thing. He is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He is powerful, but he's not all-powerful. The name of Jesus far outranks him and exceeds him in power. Aren't you glad? I said, aren't you glad? Okay, here's the next thing. Number five, he's not omnipresent, meaning he is not everywhere at the same time. Now, he has a team that works with him. That team is responsible to feed him information. Okay, so that's how he gains his information. But he's not like God in the sense that God can be everywhere. So, you know, listen, and, and let me use a, a, an opposite analogy. So if Brenda says, you know, the devil was attacking me this week, and I say, you know what? He was attacking me too. Well, guess what? He wasn't attacking both of us. Members of his team were attacking us, but he was not because he can't be everywhere at the same time. So he was either bothering her or he was bothering me, but he can't do both. Okay, are we clear? All right, here's uh, the next thing. He is not sovereign. He does not have complete reign, rule, and authority. All right, so we need to understand these basic truths so that as we dive into the book of Job, and we look at some things that transpire because there are people, believers, that did not understand the, the th simple truths we just said, and so therefore it's caused them to greatly misunderstand some things that happened in the book of Job. So what I want to do is I want to break down and do a little what's called an expository study of the first portion, the first few verses of the book of Job, because these are the verses that trip most people up, and we want to look at them. So let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 in the Amplified Bible, and I just like to amplify because it expounded on it a little bit more. And, and expository means this, is where it's a type of study where you take it verse by verse by verse, and, and then expound on it, make some commentary, and teach on it, all right? So Look at verse 6 of Job chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons, parenthetically, the angels of God. So in the King James, it says the sons of God. And what that is, a, it's actually a misnomer. He's actually referring to angels. So there was a day when the sons or the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan defining his, this is exactly in the Hebrew what the word Satan means, adversary and accuser, adversary and accuser. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. So he, the adversary and the accuser, also came among them. So during this time, uh, Satan had access or has access to the throne room of God. And the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? Then Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, if you're taking notes, let's write some things down. Here we go. Number one, God does not ask questions because he does not know the answer. In other words, he's trying to gather or learn information. God does not ask questions because he lacks information. So he knew good and well where the devil had been, what the devil had been doing, and so forth. So he presented this question to Satan, 
because he wanted to see what the response would be. In other words, this question was rhetorical, all right? Now, here's something that you need to understand and, and pay attention to what Satan said. Let me back up. Notice what Satan said in verse 7. God asked him, where did you come from? Satan said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, I want you to know something. He still does that today. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. It says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Now, what is he doing when he's walking about? When he's pacing up and down and to and fro, what is he doing? He is looking for someone whom he may devour. Can I say another word? He may destroy or bring destruction. Now, Jesus, not in your notes, but Jesus in John 10.10 10 gave us a little insight into what his role is or his occupation, if you will, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. You need to understand something. He is bent on your destruction. He hates you. The reason being is because you represent God to him. And he hates God worse than he hates you, but he can't get to God to hurt God. But he can hurt or try to hurt God's people. Okay? So he's still doing the same thing. So God probes and says, where did you come from? He says, I was walking to and fro in the earth. Now, Peter gives us a little insight. What was he doing? He was trying to find someone that he could destroy. Okay? All right? So, look at Job 1.8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, and there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who reverently fears God and abstains from and shuns evil because it is wrong. Now, this verse right here has caused people a lot of problems, and the reason being, it is mistranslated. In my old school King James Bible, I looked it up this week as I was studying to, and preparing for this just to be sure, and it also says it in my new King James Bible, if, if you have a paper Bible, when you get home, look at it, and you will see in the center column of your Bible, it will have a reference, and it will say something to this effect that God asked the question, have you already set your heart on Job? Here's, here's what I want you to write down. Number two is this. God does not throw people under the bus. Aren't you glad? I deserve to be thrown under the bus, but God won't do it. God does not throw people under the bus as, as it seems that he did with Job if you casually read this on the surface. Now, again, in the margin of the New King James, there's a reference for verse 8 that reads, Have you already set your heart on Job? This is the accurate translation. In other words, God knew what, what Satan was thinking. Again, he's probing to see if uh, he will be truthful in his response. All right? Are you, are you tracking with me so far? Okay. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job reverently fear God for nothing? 
Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have conferred prosperity and happiness upon him in the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Do you remember what we said last week about how prosperous Job was? You remember that? Job was not poor. He was not broke. He was, by our today's standards, a multi-millionaire. In other words, because he was a good man, he lived with integrity and did the right thing, God was able to bless him. Now, he, and we also said last week, he was not a covenant child of God like Abraham was, but he still honored God, revered God, feared God, and endeavored to do the right thing. So here's what you need to understand. Because of that and his heart attitude, if you crack the door open this wide for God, God will step through it. Are you listening to me? Now, on the flip side of that, if you crack the door this wide for the devil, he will step through it. Okay? So here's what I want you to see. Notice what Satan is asking. He says, um, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you put a hedge about him? In other words, Satan is asking questions trying to figure out how Job got so prosperous and blessed. He did not know why. So here's the next thing I want you to write down, and that is this. Satan does ask questions because he does not know the answer. So he is probing God trying to figure out, is there an access point that I can gain into Job's life? So in other words, uh, God, I, I look at this man's life, I observe his life, and you have obviously blessed him and prospered him. So in other words, is there a hedge of protection around him? In other words, are you protecting him and I cannot gain access to him? Okay? Are, are you with me? Okay. So, Satan asks questions because he does not know the answer. So, this gives us a clue as to what Satan was doing in observing Job. He's looking to see if there is access that he can gain into Job's life. So, here's number four. Job did not have a covenant with God and therefore did not have a covenant hedge of protection. Now, you remember in our study of Psalm 91, you remember that a few months ago? Okay, you are covenant children of God and therefore you do have a covenant hedge of protection. Praise God. Now, it's not automatic. You have to believe and stand in faith trusting God in that, but you have an advantage that Job did not have. Because of what Jesus has done for us and brought us into the covenant, we have this right. What you need to understand is this, supernatural protection from heaven is only afforded to those that are in a covenant relationship with God. So people that don't know Jesus, that have never received Christ, God loves them, he's merciful towards them, but they do not have access to a covenant protection right from the Lord. Okay? All right. So let's go to Job 1.11. But put forth, now this is Satan talking to God, 
But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Okay, I want to show you and highlight the ignorance of the devil here. What do you think, I'm going to put this out there, what do you think was causing Job to be as blessed and prosperous as he was? Could it be, have been because God did touch all that he had? Okay, are, are, you follow me? Okay, remember Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan is asking God, hey, listen, touch all that you have or touch all that Job has. Well, I can just, you know, read or sense what maybe God was thinking. You idiot, I have been touching all that he has. And he's blessed and prospered because of it. But Satan thinks that when God touches people, it causes them to get destroyed. Because notice what he said. Touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. Here's what the devil is after with Job. And here's what the devil is after with you. If you experience destruction in your life, he is of the mindset that you will curse God. You'll turn your back on him and you'll say, God, I don't want you anymore. If this is what it means to serve you, forget it. And that's what he was hoping Job would do. He said, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, now this is another statement that people misunderstand. And the Lord said to Satan, the adversary and the accuser, behold, all that he has is in your power. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want to say this. People read that to say, Behold, I'm giving you everything that is in his power. God made a statement. He said, Everything he has is in your power. Well, what am I saying? What I'm saying is there was an access point that the devil didn't even realize he had and God spoke the truth and said, whether you realize it or not, he's tied my hands and everything he has is already under your power or authority. Okay? And then he said, but only upon the man himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of, of the Lord. Let me show you something about how merciful God is. In spite of Job not having a covenant protection, God still placed a limit on what the devil could do. He couldn't destroy the man personally. Okay? God loves people. You need to understand that. Okay? All right. So, what was the devil doing? Here's number five. Satan was seeking an access point into Job's life to bring destruction and move Job to curse God. Now, again, here's what you need to understand. This is the same. He hasn't changed his method of operation. He still desires the same thing. 
He is probing, looking for an access point so that he can bring destruction into your life and get you to curse God and turn your back on God. You know why? Because that's the only way that'll hurt God is when God's people turn their back on him and turn away from him, that's the only way that Satan can hurt God. Are you listening to me? Okay. So what was this access point? What was it that opened the door for Satan to be able to have access into Job's life? We'll come back next week and we're going to talk about what was the access point. I'm not being funny. I really am going to talk about it next week, okay? But there was an access point that Job was involved in, and Job didn't even realize he was involved in. Listen, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a punchline. Job thought he was doing the right thing, but he was doing the right thing with the wrong motivation, and it caused an access point for the devil. You can be doing the right thing, Thing, but with the wrong motivation, and it will open the door to the enemy. Intriguing, huh? We'll come back next week, all right? Now, I want to go back to uh, verse 6, okay? Job chapter 1, verse 6, again, in the Amplified. Now, there was a day when the sons, the angels of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan the adversary and accuser also came among them, okay? Now, here's number six. Write this down, please. During the dispensations of the Old Testament and the church age or the church dispensation that we are in now, Satan has limited access to God's throne. Now, somebody said... You know, how? And listen, this is another one of those things. I don't understand all the whys and wherefores. It's just a fact, and you have to take it because the Bible teaches it, okay? Now, so let, let me show you some scriptures that support what I'm saying. Now, we know in the Old Testament this was the case simply because of what we read in the book of Job. Now, here's something you need to understand, just a little side note. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament there's not a whole lot of discussion about Satan like there is in the New Testament? You want me to tell you why? Okay, well then I won't. All right. Does anybody want to know? Okay, here's why. Because the cultures of that day were built so much on idol and God worship that God felt like if he presented and put a lot of focus on this adversary called Satan then the people would begin to worship him in order to appease him. You've heard of cultures that, you know, they, they worship the, the, the sun god because they don't want the sun to be able to beat down on them, and they worship the god of water because they don't want famine, all those types of things. So all of these cultures were around and built around of trying to appease a god that they felt like was mad at them. So if, if there was a lot of discussion about the adversary, Satan, then the people would decide that they needed to worship him and sacrifice to him and all this in order to appease him and keep him off their backs. Okay? Now, that we don't need to be concerned about that because the veil has been pulled back and we know the truth. 
all right? So what you need to understand is that there is more discussion about Satan in the New Testament because he is our adversary and he is our accuser, but there is something you can do about both of those. Hallelujah, all right? But he does have limited access. So let me show you a couple of New Testament examples. Look at Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32. Now this is the end of what's called the dispensation of the law. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was just prior to the new covenant being instituted by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And so this was still true at this time, but it's still true today. Notice what Jesus told Peter right before the crucifixion. The Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now this is, let me back up and give you a little more context. This is when Jesus got through telling the disciples, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm gonna, they're going to put me on a cross. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord, not so. And, and Jesus comes back to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Well, where did he ask for Peter? He asked for Peter before the throne. He said, let me have Peter. Now, notice what Jesus said. But I have prayed for you. Jesus, can I say this? He's called the intercessor now in the, this covenant, but thank God he was an intercessor even during his time on the earth. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Now, I want to ask you a question, a little pop quiz. Did Peter's faith fail? Yes, it did. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times, okay? So he failed big time, all right? So, but, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So Jesus interceded for Peter in the hopes that Peter would stand strong, but Peter has a will. Peter can override the prayers of even Jesus himself, and we know what happened. Peter failed. But notice what Jesus said. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Isn't it good that Jesus knew how it was going to turn out? He knew Peter was going to deny him. Matter of fact, Jesus told Peter, hey, before the sun rises in the morning and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He couldn't tell Peter the full scope of the story because it would have sounded like this. Hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but hang on, as soon as I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to restore you and you're, you're going to turn around and you're, everything's going to be okay. He couldn't do that. But he did tell Peter, he said, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So when did Peter return to the Lord? After Jesus was raised from the dead. You remember Peter and James and John were in the boat and Jesus is on the shore. He's having a fish fry and he's cooking some fish and they realize that it was Jesus. And you remember where Peter jumped out of the boat. Now you need to read some details into your Bible the Bible says that he was basically, and I'm not trying to be crude when I say this, he was sitting in the boat in his underwear, okay? And so when he realized it was Jesus, he put on his clothes real quick and didn't even wait for them to row to the shore. 
He jumped in the water and swam to shore because he wanted to get to Jesus so fast. Why? Because he wanted to be restored. He wanted Jesus to know how sorry he was for denying him and that his heart truly was for the Lord. So what did Jesus do? Jesus pulled him aside and had a little conversation with me, with him. And he said this, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know how many times Jesus asked him that question? Three times. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. He gave him an opportunity to be redeemed and restored because he's that good. Aren't you glad? All right? But here's my point in even looking at these scriptures, and that is this, is that Satan designed and plotted and wanted to destroy Peter. He wanted Peter to have the same end that Judas did. You remember what happened with Judas after he betrayed the Lord? The Bible says he went and hung himself. Okay? He wanted the same destruction to happen to Peter. Now, what this shows me is if Judas had repented, Jesus would have forgiven him. Okay? But he didn't get that chance. All right, look at Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10. So the great dragon was cast out. Now, this is in the middle of the tribulation period. All right, we're not, this isn't a study of end time prophecy, but during the tribulation period, the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, the first three and a half is going to be a great time of peace. The Antichrist is going to establish himself and come out being the hero and all this good stuff. And then he's going to turn and bring great evil into the world. And what happens is, so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, look at this, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now he's already been cast out of heaven one time. But what this is saying is that access to the throne room ends right then. And so he's cast out. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Hallelujah. Now here's what you need to understand. He is your adversary and he is the accuser of the brethren. Now, let me give you a little background as far as what's going on in heaven even today. Okay, now I'm, I need a little scrap sheet of paper here, so I'm getting one. It's going to be my prop. All right, so in heaven, there is praise and worship going on. The Bible tells us that. The angels are worshiping the Lord. Uh, the saints that have already gone home to be with the Lord are there worshiping the Lord. But in God's actual throne room, I want you to sense or just imagine with me just for a moment more of a courtroom scene than a great church service, okay, with masses of people singing and all of that. That's going on. But in God's presence in the throne room, it's more like a courtroom situation. Now, here's what happens. Satan comes into the presence of God with a handful of notes. If I'd have thought about it, I'd have brought a clipboard with a whole bunch of pieces of paper on it. 
Because that's what the devil does. He comes into the, and I don't know if it's, you know, actual physical notes, but he comes into the presence of God with a handful of notes that he is constantly collecting and observing information about you and me. Because I don't know about you, but I still miss it. I know y'all are perfect. Y'all don't ever sin or miss it or mess up, but I do, okay? Now, y'all pray for your pastor, all right? Pray for my scrimp in the Lord, all right? So Satan comes into the presence of God with a handful of notes of stuff, information that he has collected about us. Why? So that he can bring it to accuse you, okay? Well, you, you, I have it written down here, God. Here's what, here's what Brad did, and he, he proceeds to bring accusation. So let's notice something, though, about this courtroom situation. It's kind of rigged, okay? It's not like Judge Judy or the People's Court, okay? Or Judge Mathis or one of the other hundreds of judge shows that are out there. All right, the judge happens to be your heavenly father. Your defense attorney is related to you by blood. He is your elder spiritual brother, and his name is Jesus. He's your defense attorney, okay? So Satan, the prosecuting attorney, has no relation to anybody in the courtroom, and matter of fact, is an outsider, okay? So what he does is he brings these accusations into heaven, bringing what you have done before God so that he can accuse you before God because what he's trying to do is prove that you have missed it, I have missed it, and God has missed it and messed up. Okay, so what happens is he brings these accusations. Now go with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. John says this, my little children, these things I write to you. So he, in response to what he's saying, my little children, in other words, these are believers that he's writing to, I write to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this is just a few verses after 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? So what happens is you, Satan comes in with these accusations, our defense attorney, our advocate, the Lord Jesus, stands up in the presence of the Father and has something to say about these accusations. Now, can, I'm just going to put a little note right here and say, this is why it is so important. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. When you sin, don't run from God. Run to God and confess it and get it under the blood. Don't let time pass. Listen, Satan doesn't take a day off. He doesn't take a vacation. Somebody says, oh, I'll deal with that at church next week. What you're doing is you're leaving seven days for the accuser to be able to accuse you. But if you have, if you have I mean, the moment you miss it, golly, 
Lord, I just sinned and I confess it to you and I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The moment that you did that in the courtroom of heaven, it's stricken from the record. Okay? And then now you have given something for your advocate to defend you with. Okay? What is an advocate? Here's an advocate. This, the definition, one who speaks or writes in support of defense or, or defense of a person, a, a person who pleads for or on behalf of another person, he is counsel for the defense. Okay? Now, hang on with me. Bear with me. When we sin... Satan tries to bring it before God and accuse us. But there's something he doesn't understand. If you have already brought it to the Father, asked for forgiveness and repented of that, you have pulled the rug out from underneath his accusation. And, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is our def defense attorney and pleads our case before God. So what happens is, Satan brings his accusation. Your defense attorney stands up and says, Your Honor, Heavenly Father, my blood has already covered what they did. And they have confessed that. It has been washed and cleansed by the blood, and therefore there is no longer any record of what they did. And so he pulls the rug out from underneath Satan's accusation. So if Satan doesn't have anything else against you, he's, he's done. Okay? Now, in our legal system, and actually I did a little bit of research. In our legal system, there is what is called the law of double jeopardy. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay. Now, and I tried to do some research to see where that came from. Because not only is it in our constitution... In Article 5 of our Constitution, it is written, and it is written on the majority of other nations in the world and, and included in their laws. And, and the earliest known written example of the principle of double jeopardy, uh, the earliest record I could find was from the 1200s. So it goes way, 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 way back, all right? But here's what I know and understand is that the law of double jeopardy is a principle that is true in heaven. What is the law of double jeopardy? The law of double jeopardy says this, that someone cannot be tried and judged again on the same or similar charges. In other words, so if you get arrested and charged with, with murder, and you go to trial, and, and you are acquitted of that particular murder, you can never be tried for that particular crime ever again. Okay? Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, but it's just the law. All right? But here's the good news. In heaven, the law of double jeopardy is in effect and once it is proven in the courtroom of heaven and you are acquitted of the charges brought against you by the prosecutor, you can never be charged with that again. Did you hear what I said? So when you confess your sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from your sins and the accuser no longer has anything to bring into the courtroom of heaven to charge you with. And besides that, 
even if you did the same thing, if you have repented and, and asked for forgiveness of it, he can't charge you and you can't be tried. Maybe this will dawn on you on the way home, all right? Let me just read a couple of scriptures. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. We're almost done. Listen to this from the Passion Translation. For we've been buried with him into his death. Our baptism into death also means that we were raised with him when we believed God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from death's realm. This realm of death describes our former state, for we were held in sin's grasp. But now we've been resurrected out of the realm of death. Say that, say that, say I've been resurrected out of the realm of death, never to return. Look at what he says. For we are forever alive and forgiven of all our sins. Now here's what I want to read. Verse 14, he, Jesus, canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. Your record has been espunged. It's been wiped clean. <laughs> All right. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He wiped it all out. He erased it all, our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Oh, I don't think you realize what he's saying. You... Get out of your mind that one day when you get to heaven, there's going to be this great screen and you're going to have to give an account for all of your sin and everybody in the line is going to be able to see what you did. That's, that's what religion teaches you. Grace and the gospel teaches you that he took it all, deleted it, and it can never be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. So not only did he do it legally, he posted it so everybody could see it and read it. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to do what? To accuse you. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Hallelujah. So the court system in heaven is rigged in your favor, but it's rigged legally. Hallelujah. So here's the last thing. Write this down. Number seven. You can never be tried and judged again for your sins because Jesus, our defense attorney, paid the price for our punishment for us. So let me, let me just very quickly give you an illustration to help you understand this. So let's say you were charged with some egregious crime. I mean, horrible crime, okay? So rightfully so, you've been arrested, you've been charged, and you're awaiting trial. So what happens is you were assigned a public defender. His name is Jesus. He's got business cards that say Jesus Christ, public defender. 
of Nazareth, all right? And so what happens is Jesus did this. He said, you know what? I've been assigned to this case, but what I'm going to do before they even commit the crime, but matter of fact, before they were ever born, I know I'm going to get assigned to that case and I'm going to be their public defender. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go ahead and take their punishment for that crime and I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to do the time so that they won't have to. You ever heard of an attorney doing that? Uh-uh. No, but yours did. Your attorney, your public defender said, hey, listen, not only will I defend you, I'll pay the price for your crime. I'll pay the fees, the fines, the punishment, everything that's required. I'll take care of it for you. And as far as justice is concerned, it is done, it is paid for, and you are now declared innocent. Hallelujah. And so when the accuser of the brethren shows up and tries to bring accusation against you, he has no case. Here's the last thing, all right? The adversary and the accuser can no longer has any case against you. Quit giving him one. Are you listening to me? As soon as you miss it, run to heaven. Run to the throne room. Because listen, God's not mad at you. He's, he's hoping that you will come to him because he's the only solution. He's the only one that can deal with it. And I know what happens. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. And, 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 and we want to wallow around in that guilt and shame. But you've got to resist that and run to God even when you feel like you can't even hold your head up because of what you did. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, what, what's this got to do with the book of Job? It, what we're doing is we're seeing what happened with Job and we're learning from it so we can close the door on our adversary and our accuser so he will not have access into our lives. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word that we've heard today. I thank you, Father, that your word, oh, Jesus, thank you that you are our advocate, that you are our defender, that you have paid the price, that you have shed your blood on our behalf and you have paid it all so that we could be declared innocent. Lord, thank you. I don't know what any of these people have done in their lives, but I know some things that I have done and I thank you, Lord, that the record has been wiped clean. It's been washed in the blood of Jesus. And I can never be charged for those crimes again. Spiritually speaking, I thank you for it, Lord. I praise you for it today. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that in so doing that, he pulled the power, the ability for the accuser to be able to accuse us of wrongdoing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being so good to us. Lord, I thank you, Father, for each and every person under the sound of my voice. And Lord, my prayer is that a revelation of this will, will get so deep into our hearts, Lord, that when guilt and condemnation and shame 
show up, Father, that we won't tolerate it, particularly about things that we have repented for. And the devil comes and whispers in our ear and says, well, you know what you did. Yeah, I do. But thank God Jesus does too, and he's already dealt with it. Hallelujah. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the price that you paid and how you've delivered us and set us free from every charge and every accusation. In the name of Jesus. Say this after me. Say, thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus. That because of that blood, I am clean. I am holy. I am right before God. And I have no charges on my record. My record is wiped clean. The accuser has nothing to bring against me because Jesus took it all away. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.